And good morning. Welcome to the Old School, a contemporary podcast uh, uh, comprised of traditional mores. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, <laughs> more, more aimed at the heart than the head. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, contemporary uh, look at education, looking at its uh, quirks, its idiosyncrasies, its, um, its uh, characteristics. Problems, solutions, and so far as we know, the solutions. Good morning, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Hello, Herr Miller. I love the introduction, and I don't think that anything about us is contemporary. <laughs> now, well, I'm trying to appeal to the kids, you know. So, That's right. That's a target demographic. <laughs> I'm trying to broaden the dem- yeah, I'm trying to broaden the scope of this thing. So, I keep saying you can. Uh, open up your your Facebook account. Don't you have all of your former students, like thousands of them, who would love to hear Mr. Miller? You know, and I know <laughs> that I do not have a Facebook account. Uh, I don't have anything. You don't have a um, what are those? I'm going to embarrass myself. No, no, you don't have a Twitter account. You don't have Facebook. You don't have no, no. no. So that was the only two I know. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't have Twitter. I don't have Facebook. I don't have TikTok. I don't have Instagram. I don't have any of the things that all the cool people are doing. I am locked away in my world of books and occasionally YouTube videos, but uh, <laughs> you can go down a rabbit hole on YouTube. That's a, you know, was it Huxley said that we have an infinite capacity for distraction? Yes. Um, <laughs> there's YouTube right there. You start going down a rabbit hole of like tiny homes or converted buses. And, and then pretty soon, two hours later, you're like, what the hell am I doing with my life? And it's funny. I spent a lot of time on tiny homes also. <laughs> it's, it's so simple that you strip away everything you don't need. You know, it's like a reverting back. It's, right. it's like we have, we've decided that uh, the, in the, in the, are you all right? Yes, sir. So far. <laughs> okay. Very good. Um, I know you're basically living in a leper colony over there, so uh, no, you can't. We'll cut that out. There's no le- <laughs> leprosy around here. <laughs> well, if it's leprosy, you don't have to cut it out; it'll just fall right off, so you don't have to worry about it. But uh, it's really bad. <laughs> but uh, anyway, <laughs> you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting giggly now. It's not a good sign for the start of the podcast. No, no. But um, <laughs> we had to reset and start over again. No, but keep um, <laughs> we keep going. <laughs> the best stuff is always cut out. So, yeah. But anyway, so no, I was, I just, um, I don't even know what I was talking about. So, um, you, you were talking about tiny homes and about to not go anywhere. No, well, yeah. But I think it's a, I think it's a callback to, I think it's people trying to get in touch with, everything we've lost with everything that we have piled on say in the last hundred years. Now, the people who had the original tiny homes, our forefathers didn't know any better and couldn't afford it anything more than that. But I think um, there's something to be said for simplicity and usually simplicity that is without all the modern trappings of society, including TikTok and Instagram and all those other silly, silly things. So we get rid of computers and social media and, you know, all of our families are in one room running into each other with no bedrooms to go into to close the door and get away from each other. 
daughters playing with faceless dolls from the old West or something like that. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I tried to tell my wife the vision I had for my place, my retirement place. And it, it occurred to her probably within the first few seconds that it was a place she wanted no part of simply because it didn't, because I, I didn't mention anything of a technological variety outside of electricity and, um, you know, a roof over our heads. I think outside of that, I think she's uh, she's pretty much out <laughs> on our future retirement abode. So you're talking no indoor plumbing, no indoor. Well, no, I'm not a barbarian. I'm not, I'm not, well, there's a line not, in there you you have to define. You yeah, but I wasn't raised by wolves. I I believe in toilets and in things of that nature. I'm just talking about like an absence of uh, Wi-Fi, an absence of. Uh, anything that could be labeled as smart. The only smart thing I want in my house, and even that would be dubious, is me, you know, and then whoever happens to be in the house with me. And that's all I want, you know. So, so effectively in your retirement, you're giving up baseball because you can't listen to it. You can't watch oh, it man. under that. I mean, you have to give but If I had up. a radio, if I was near a baseball team, and if I was near the broadcasting of a baseball team, that would suffice. But you're right. That's what cuts to the quick is the notion of potentially sacrificing baseball, which I'm not sure I can do. So well, if I'm living close enough to a baseball team, you can walk. Well, I could walk and drive or I could listen to the radio broadcast, which, as you know, I do most of the time. Anyway, I, I get the MLB audio package, you know, listen to every ball game on the radio. It's great. I mean, technology doesn't have to be electronic technology. There's all kinds of technology out there. So you're making, you're drawing lots of lines in the sand with, with your argument. Yes, but there, there are lines that I'm quite comfortable with and familiar with. So you just want to cut out the noise, it sounds like. Um, you've you've cut had enough. I have. <laughs> and of course, you know, somewhere along the line, on my way to my retirement, Havala or Valhalla, whatever, you know, the idea of, you know, as you said, you know, dropping the phone somewhere in a deep hole where no one will ever find it again. That appeals to me as well. I'm so sick and tired of this phone thing. I've always said I want to drop it in the Ryan. It just it just sounds um, so impressive to say you did that. I know it's littering and they'd probably throw you in jail, but uh, <laughs> physically dropping a phone in the Ryan would, would be memorable. Heinrich Heine, you know, spoke wrote about the kind of the transcending nature of the Rhine. You know, maybe this could be your transcendence, and it could be littered with uh, <laughs> cell phones at some point. Right? <laughs> um, so, so you're going to walk away from everything, including teaching and all the fun of being around students and parents, for example. I will a semi-hermetic lifestyle, not necessarily. Um, not quite that bad. I like people. I like talking to people, but uh, I just don't like all the other noise that accompanies it. So, okay, but um, we'll we'll people, turn I, I'll, I'll have dinner. Get I'll have dinner. I'll have dinner parties. People come over, hang out. Okay. Um, I have a friend who plays the piano. Maybe he can come over. You know, okay, tickle, tickle the ivories, as it were. But um, just waiting for the invite there, Herr Miller. <laughs> Okay, um, I'll let you know. So, well, it's hard well, to get out of this and talk about school. I, I tried to drop the word parents because that's kind of our, our topic. Um, not a great transition. 
that uh, there, there there is some noise there that you know, we could overcome maybe going away from the things of man. Well, if we were professional broad podcasters, if we were uh, more adroit at our craft that we're still just learning, we might be able to do a gentle curve into the topic at hand. Instead, we're going to have to grab the wheel, do a hard left, hold on to the old crap bar on the top of the car, and then get back to the topic at hand. And here we are, parents. So lost me with about the first third of that metaphor. Uh, so anyway. right out, right out of your car. Yeah. So I want. <laughs> so so here's here's what I'm thinking. So um, not to get into politics, however. Um, so late last year, uh, Virginia had a gubernatorial race uh, that was won by the Republican challenger. And part of what fueled the Republicans' victory, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Yonkin, I believe, uh, was the fact that the his opponent, the incumbent, made mention that parents really should not have a say in how a uh, school is run, what is taught, how it's taught so forth and so on. And it brings us to the notion of exactly what is the role, what has traditionally been the role of parents, what currently is the role, and what could or should be the role of parents within a school. Um, traditionally, you know, when you were a teacher, what was the way in which you often encountered uh, parents, parents who were not, you know, the parents of your students? Well, often they would, they would have me over for dinner. Um, um, what? <laughs> I'm serious. When I when I was a, a young teacher, and um, some some I, I, were you not ever invited to dinner at parents' homes? No, no. I was I was a beloved teacher, and um, this I mean I can't say how many times it happened. Quite a few, you know, um, almost a regular thing. By the like divorcee mothers or no 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 we're talking about the the kid and the I mean the parents know me because I had positive interactions you know and and I I did did some things that were public like being a a tennis coach you know Mm -hmm. teaching German taking kids to Germany and all that and and so there was interaction there I think that that's you know this doesn't come out of the blue but um, having parent meetings often. You know, for, for right. both, you know, booster clubs. So I got to know the parents uh, really well. They come out to practice ha- afterwards and talk, and mm-hmm. and certainly through the German program, um, became beloved. What what can I say? And uh, <laughs> would would go over and have some great great food, and um, got to know the parents. So I, I had a really good relationship with you know, parents for the for the most part. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You're saying you've never been invited to dinner no. by a current student's parents. Well, first of all, my initial question was absent of the kids that you are personally accountable for, that sort of thing. But <laughs> no, I, 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 just, I also did not have that kind of unique um, interaction. You know, my, you know, I joined your little merry band of marauders uh, going to Germany much later, and I wasn't a coach. And so I'd... I think I think being a coach kind of forces you into a bit of a different relationship with parents than might be typically experienced by a classroom teacher and classroom teacher only. Well, I, I think it was a different era, and it wasn't that long ago. But 
but well there's that too but you know people were more comfortable with that kind of thing but uh you know that just the the general parents you know that it, it's interesting the parents you meet tend to be the ones you don't necessarily need need to see because their their kids are doing really really well um right and so you you rarely meet meet the others but i i think it's uh, instructive as a teacher really because for for those those parents you know their kid is everything and you and you mm -hmm. get to to see uh, where they come from and, and that um the, the parents really do care what, what what's going on and, and so sure. they're they what they they say what they mean um even though it can be interpreted as annoying because often they, they can be pests you know particularly about grades and emailing about this <clears throat> that and that and that so you you know I, I still prefer the ones who who come to those public type events but but leave the the teaching to the professionals and and and, and don't try to intervene as a uh, an attorney for their child on every little thing. Well, I think uh, what you're saying is how most teachers will experience parents, and that is, well, first of all, you got the parents, usually the moms who work as volunteers within the school. Maybe they'll they'll oversee the copy room or something like that, or or you know the PTA is usually you know, sniffing around somewhere, trying to figure out how to spend their money to help out teachers. Or, you know, the... <laughs> this whole statement you're implying that it's just moms or volunteers. And the... Well, no, I mean, I don't, I've never seen a dad volunteer. I can only speak to my experience. I'm sure oh. they're out there. Oh, this... I, I just, I never seen it though. Oh, I'm, I'm... But what I'm saying is, is that, okay. <laughs> you know, there, there are, you know, there are ways I think in which most teachers will look at a parent involvement and say, that there is a there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I think most people accept that part of the correct way traditionally that a parent has interacted with teacher has to do with has to do with grades, either how to improve it or um, or something along those lines. What tends to get controversial is when parents <clears throat> seek to have influence on what is taught or how things are taught. And that's when some folks would say that parents are kind of leaving their lane, as it were. And I want to I want to kind of paint a little picture for you and then get your reaction for it, because so one of the things that we see around the country, we see various groups of people that are trying to have influence on how things are taught. Some people want it done at various levels. But traditionally, the reason why education has been the primary domain of the state and local governments is because it was seen that, and this is before we were the transient society that we are now, <clears throat> it was thought that some federal bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. could not possibly have a better idea about how to educate the students of, say, Texas or Iowa or Oregon than the folks who are elected to oversee that process at the state and local level, okay? And I think anytime the federal government makes efforts to try to exert itself onto the state operation, that's when people start to get a bit disagreeable, you know? And I think and I th what, I, what I see here is a fight is that there are some forces in this country that want to apply things at a kind of a national level, 
And there are some folks that are trying to reassert the notion that education, how kids are taught, what they're taught, should be something that's left to the the local um, uh, entities and, and politicians and groups like school boards and things of that nature. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I want to go back to the the political case that you you mentioned in that that election um and what were specific complaints uh, about the interaction of, of parents well there was two major complaints and you know dep- you know the first and foremost and this goes against maybe some of the narrative that you hear at the on na- in national media but one of the issues about education had to do with Uh, the closures of schools, you know, we're just coming through this pandemic and some Virginia schools were closed for an inordinate amount of time, even as other schools around the country uh, were opening and dealing with COVID the best they could, but they kept the doors open. And there were some in Virginia that felt that the, certainly the teachers unions, which that would be a hell of a podcast, (laughs) the teachers unions or, or, or state or local officials kind of took it upon themselves to close schools. The other issue, which gets more play nationally, is the, um, is the CRT stuff, the uh, uh, critical race theory um, rigmarole that kind of interjected itself and played itself out on mainly YouTube, is you saw all these showdowns at school board meetings of people yelling at each other, carrying signs with misspelled words, just just people that are angry about one thing or another. And so that was probably the two main areas of concern that I think folks had with how schools were run. Okay. Well, those are relatively new issues and um, critical race theory and and the debates on, on that and and COVID, you know, I, I was jumping back about 25 years and thinking about the interaction as it should be, ideally. Um, but but we're we're talking about interjecting heavy politics in, into the into the schools. Um, well, I think I think this I think this has been <clears throat> this has been something that is a very recent thing. Yeah. When you consider, right. well, yeah. When you consider that, <clears throat> for example. You look at, uh, you were talking about 20, 25 years ago. Um, I'm trying to remember um, um, when the Department of Education came about. Um, it, was in, it began in 1978, 79, 80, that sort of thing. And so the notion of a kind of a federal oversight, or certainly a kind of ensconced one, is a relatively new thing. And so I think up until then, there really had not been a major conversation about about the notion of what is taught in schools or how things are taught and the fact that it would not be solely the purview of local government. So I think you go back to the beginning of your career or or to a lesser extent, the beginning of my career. I think that the notion of outside forces playing a role in schools was a relatively new thing. I think now it's more prevalent and the things that have happened over the last two years have certainly exacerbated the tensions between local government and federal government. Well, I, I wonder about the, 
the local con control. That seems to be um, the most expedient way to get a, get out of the political fight, at least at the state level, and say mm -hmm. we're going to hand it over. I mean, clearly there are there are things that are tied to money. You know, you don't do your state tests, you don't get any funding, you're, they shut you down. Right. Um, and, and there's a whole lot of other policies and rules that that, that have to be followed for, for that funding. Mm -hmm. but, on, but on things that relate to the community, uh, I mean, it gives the, the state some fl flexibility. Otherwise, you're going to be experiencing that kind of a storm mm -hmm. uh, every day. Question being... Because the way parents tend to interact is at the local level. So either they are showing up at board meetings or they're running for the school board. They're running for a position on the school board. Do you think that parents should have the influence on what is taught? As far as what, what makes it to the, to the classroom, um, we're, we're talking in terms of um, traditional public schools, right. school district schools with state money, not Funding, private schools. Yes. And um, um, I, I like to think that it's left to the professionals. Certainly they have control over their own child to the extent that if they don't like what's happening in the, in the classroom, they can, you know, potentially opt out of certain uncomfortable subjects mm. um, or they, they can vote with their feet. You know, there's a lot of educational options. I think, you know, charter schools are there for a lot of reasons, but but one is just what you're saying, you know, to have a potentially a program that aligns more with the outlook of, of, of parents. And then there's the, the private school option for obvious reasons. You tend to get a more homogenous group there as far as the parents thinking. Well, I mean, I think the debate is what is taught as opposed to how it's taught. You know, someone said if if a, if a community as a whole, meaning the majority, you take that for whatever grain of salt you want. But let's say that the community as a whole wanted something in particular taught. I don't know. I mean, just anything that was not previously taught. There was no previously constructed class in which students could learn this. Do you not think that the that the parents have an have a rightful expectation? that there's at least serious investigative processes to look into how to make that class available? Or do you think that, you know, from, from a bird's eye view, the, the district and school administrators have to be able to make the decision as to what's taught, what's not taught? That's a, that's a really long answer to that, but I, I, I mean, you, you technically the, the curriculum of, of the state is, would be the, the standards um, yes that and, and then so that that is the curriculum no matter what the school says it is that right that is the curriculum and it's assessed on the, the state test mm -hmm. but there are a lot of ways to to get there and there, there's a process to adopt courses mm -hmm. and, and it's not a quick uh, process you don't just say hey i'm going to teach a, a class on this and then drop it on you know in the catalog the next <laughs> next week or the next year for that matter right. um and and then the and the, the process of you know district oversight and then ultimately the school board mm -hmm. you know any, anytime you add a, add a course or something like that has to be approved right. um, and so that that is the 
the mechanism for for parents to to have input. Um, and, I think and you're I'm, talking about like core classes. Well, I'm talking any, about any any yeah yeah. Any yeah. Class. Well, what I'm saying about core, well, the core classes and yeah for the uninitiated, you know, math, science, history, and English. I think any parent that complains to the school board, they're barking at the wrong tree. You need to go to the capital. You need to go to where statewide decisions are made. But I think where you tend to see the most um, the most latitude is through electives, you know, where uh, students and parents get to choose to put their kids in a particular class at, outside of the the main four that they have to take. And so insofar as that that's in uh, your right, it's a long process because someone's got to write the course. Someone's got to write the proposal. It's got to be submitted for pr- approval. Then once you get it submitted, then you've got to make decisions on resources and textbooks and other ancillary kind of materials. And then you need to start recruiting for it. You know, so the teacher's got to whoever wants to teach it, it's got to start making the rounds in the school to try to convince students to take the course. And so um, I just wonder about how much leeway and latitude parents should have to be able to to kind of create that absent of a teacher kind of initiating things. I think the best thing they can do is, is make suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most uh, schools and districts have a lot of courses on the books that they're not mm-hmm. even um, offering. Right. It, it's a matter of, can you give credit for that? I mean, credit is, is, is really almost the sacred thing where a student needs a certain number of credits to graduate, to, mm-hmm. to confer a, degree but i i think that the, the parents do have the ability to suggest certainly they, they can't you know walk it through uh, mm-hmm. to, to getting a course but but i think any principal will listen if there's a um outcry from parents that we would like this they, they should talk about it right well that's basically i mean the notion of how do you and unfortunately my subject takes it in the shorts the most what because, you know, as far as what's taught, how things are taught, you know, the debate, you know, CRT, all that stuff kind of centers on history education. You know, now we've talked about this before. I think one of the reasons why there's so much, there's so many people opining about what and how things should be taught from a historical point of view is because for whatever reason, people think that history is more accessible. You know, no one's going to sit there and bang on the school doors demanding that, you know, algebraic equations or or quantum physics be taught in a particular way because no one understands it. Mm-hmm. But everyone feels they have a level of understanding about history. And that gives people a lot of license to then put forth ideas on how things are taught and what is, what is taught. I think you know of of the two examples that math methodology can be pretty controversial, right? As well, but particularly about the sequence. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, but I, yeah, I, I think yeah, you're right. There are a lot of amateur historians, and but but un, unfortunately, you know, the conversation within about five seconds becomes highly political, right? Um, and, and you can see how I. Uh, intentionally if it, takes, if it takes that long yeah yeah and so i've intentionally uh, avert the the question myself because it, <laughs> um, i'm i'm in business to serve schools you know and uh, so it's it's a it's 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 tricky but but I, I i feel for you as a 
history teacher, but I have a feeling that it's not making its way into your class because you won't let it. Well, there's two things that help insulate me. One is that there is not the uproar in my neck of the woods about what and how things are taught. Uh, what you know, when I experience it, it's mainly through the news and I'm seeing it in some sort of far off place, like some sort of banana Republic where things are just out of control and you know, people are, people are demanding things left and right. But <laughs> the other thing is, of course, because I'm an AP teacher, I'm primarily reacting to a curriculum, which is not just national, but international. And so there's not a lot of pressures that can be put upon uh, my curriculum, unless someone wanted to make a national or international move to make changes within said curriculum. So that's part of what kind of isolates me from it. That being said, I'm also, though, kind of worried about how history education is done and the influences that it has and, and people's attempt to try to influence it. You know, I think that parents do have a right to put forth ideas. I think they should have an advisory type of function. As far as the actual application of it, I kind of agree with you that they, you know, if, if we're supposed to be the experts, then there has to be some, even a scintilla of latitude given to us to make these kind of decisions based on the fact that we know the subject and we know the discipline and we know the craft more than the average person on the street. So if you just made, imagine you decided, you know, this is a crazy idea, but to attend a school board meeting, you know, we never do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> imagine you made the same you know, speech you just did. And, you know, after a, a parent makes uh, some heated suggestions, you know, are, are they going to say, oh, I, I never thought of it. Well, thank you, Mr. Miller. I'll, I'll, <laughs> <my> name, <laughs> um, the, the response would probably be a little different, I would think. Well, because to say it, <laughs> to, to say that is to, at least in the minds of perhaps the people that are going to be most offended, there's a certain level of idea that people feel like they're being put in their place. And that's not necessarily the intent. The intent is the expertise has got to count for something, you know? And I think the more accessible a particular skill set is, the more people feel free to comment on it and to give thoughts about it, you know, no one's going to, you know, no one's going to tell the heart surgeon, are you really sure you should have bypassed that particular valve? I mean, what were you thinking? But if I'm sitting there just opining about George Washington, well, I know about George Washington. I should have a say in how this is taught. And then, and then it gets a little bit trickier. And it's simply because of how accessible people think the information is. Um, but no, I, I, I think I think they are going to be mad. I don't, I don't know how to say it without getting somebody mad. And that either is a product of the fact that my opinion is wrong, which I don't think is possible, or that this is just going to be something that either people accept or they don't accept. Um, well, it, it seems to be getting worse and it will get worse. You know, the, you have students in, in, in class, you have phones, you have the, I mean, pretty much you assume everything you speak is at a public forum, you know, in your classroom in, in a way, yeah. you know, um, so the pressure on, on a teacher is certainly different than, you know, say 25 years ago, where you close the door and, and 
you know, students didn't re report back so readily. <laughs> oh, here's what my teacher said. And here's what he said about George Washington or whatever. And, um, but then it makes it right to the principal. So that, that little line of communication from what you say in class to what a, a, a kid says to the parent, like to the principal is almost lightning type speed, text, text, text. Mr. Miller, would you come talk to me? Come, please come to the principal. <laughs> Remember those uh, announcements? I don't think they even use that now, do they? They should, they though. I like the I like the walk of shame notion of uh, <laughs> teachers going to the principal's office. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, unfortunately, I, so here's where here's where a lot of teachers run afoul of both common sense, but also antagonism sometimes from parents. And that is when discussions are had in class. Now, the problem is in my field, discussions are and are of a right should be an integral part of the lesson. You know, I can sit there and talk about George Washington or I can find a modern day application of the same things that George Washington faced and sit there and have a question, have a conversation with my students about it. So a couple of days ago, I had a conversation with my students on the notion of civil liberties, you know. And civil liberties was brought up through the Sedition Act in World War I when Wilson basically tried to stamp out freedom of speech in order to galvanize support behind the American war effort in World War I. And traditionally, we have taught that as, the, as, um, as a failure of democracy that Wilson felt the need to stamp out um, freedom of speech. And I then correlated that to similar ideas of sacrificing of civil liberties uh, as it relates to the pandemic and people's opposition to, you know, state or local or federal guidelines on how things are done. Now, you can't tell me that someone wasn't rolling tape on that conversation in my class. Now, they, they have the good sense not to do it overtly, but all it takes is like two taps on the phone and bam, you've got yourself a live podcast about from Mr. Miller's classroom about the notion of civil liberties. I don't care because one, I know what I'm doing and I never interject my own personal viewpoints. I'm merely playing devil's advocate to anybody who feels the need to speak up and I can retire and I just don't care. But I think from a, if you're a younger teacher, who's got, who doesn't have nearly as many, much skin in the game as I do. I think it can be a, I think it could be a, um, an oppressive sort of idea that hangs over your head. Should you decide to talk about what could be construed as controversial? Now that, that that's really sad. And I, th I think it's, it's true. It's a real interesting point that the, the tendency would be to play it safe, you know, and, mm -hmm. and not, have the conversation and, and make it a more transactional interaction with with students. Here you here here's the material. Here's your test, and mm. and, and it loses the I guess some of the excitement and the beauty of, of of teaching. And I have a real strong feeling that uh, those teachers aren't invited to the to dinner at the students' <laughs> home uh, because they, 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 we've lost that magic of. Mm -hmm. you know, working closely with, with parents and, and and not worrying about what every, every, everybody says like all the time. As B.B. King said, the thrill is gone, baby. I mean, the, the, the relationship that I think that teachers and parents <laughs> used to have, I think is irrevocably different. Now, I wouldn't say it across the board, mm 
I think there are still places where that cooperative yet uh, yielding approach on the on the part of parents still exists. But I think in some, I think in a lot of places, it's become quite adversarial. Well, there, there's a, a model of schooling. It's a private school type model, a university model where where te- uh, students may be at home for two days a week, and their parents are are technically co-instructors, and then they go right. to school for for three days, and and so that notion uh, creates this connection you know, directly between the parent who is instructing their child to some extent. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot to be said for uh, involvement um, that, that, that's natural and, and not as uh, antagonistic as, as what we're describing now. Well, it is getting touchy. And I think people are using very strange things to get worked up about. So I used to have a cartoon on my, so I had a class website. I still do. And um, at the beginning of the front page of the website of, for my for AP US history, I had a cartoon of a teacher talking to a group of students saying, I'm here to correct all the mistakes your parents made in teaching you history. And so I thought it was funny. <laughs> I thought, you know, and so, so I'm sure you uh, did. <laughs> But the idea was, is that, you know, the way history has traditionally been taught has not always been the best way the history should be taught. And unfortunately, it is a product of the uh, of the way in which I received my initial history education and um, and with that, how parents receive their initial history education. That's what the joke is about, about the cartoon. But I had a parent <laughs> saw the cartoon and I had to, and I and my principal had to give up about 20 minutes of our lives to have a conversation about a cartoon. And we're not talking about the kind of cartoon that leads, you know, that leads people into the streets. We're just talking about a stupid cartoon. Well, but it's also about the difference between what is conce- what is what is uh, construed as history in a secular sense, and use kind of strange words there, as opposed to what it's like within the sanctum sanctorum of my classroom, that I have a kind of a more of a, a different look at history because I have a, a, have an historian's look at history as opposed to someone on the outside who's not trained in history, how they take in history and how they perceive history to be. So you touched a nerve and had to have a 20-minute conversation. Did you take the cartoon down? No. Okay. Well, cartoon. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask a more pointed question. At, yes. For a good chunk of your career, at least when I knew you, you had a, a poster on the wall with a, <laughs> with a. I still have that poster. With a dog. Okay. Explain the dog thing um, because I okay, do it better than I because I, I think that they would complain about that. Strangely, I've never gotten a comment about that poster, <laughs> but the poster the poster is a is a um, is a riff on an old mad magazine mm-hmm. cover um and it's a picture of a dog with a with a pistol to its head <laughs> and the, dog's, the dog's the dog is like looking as as askance at the gun yeah and the caption is buy this magazine or we'll kill this dog well i i, I made mention of the mag uh, i had made mention of the magazine cover one time with my students and some of my students got the idea to refashion the front cover of that magazine 
instead of National Lampoon, it says Miller's Lampoon. History is fun magazine. And then next to the dog is the caption, pass this class or we'll shoot this or we'll kill this dog. And I just thought it was funny. And I've had that thing in my classroom. I'm shocked. <laughs> I am shocked. More people have not said, but I don't think people pay attention, you know, especially nowadays, people don't pay attention to anything, yeah. you know? And so they have no, you know, have no situational awareness. They have no spatial awareness. People just are they're in kind of their own little world. They don't look at stuff. That's and a- so I think part of it is because, they don't, they don't ever look at it is why I've never had a comment about it, but I'm prepared to defend it, you know, if for no other reason, but it's been up there for the last 20 years, you know, in one classroom or another. Well, and you're supposed to put student work on the board, you know, that that's, that's a good thing. So you, you have that, but I, I, you know, parents go in there probably often you you have parents in the room and they, you don't think, does anyone even laugh at it? I don't think people notice it. I mean, you know, a dog with a gun to his head. No one knows. <laughs> you would think that would draw some sort of reaction, but right. it never has. Either they didn't notice it, they saw it, and either didn't understand it or thought it was funny. But then they just moved on. And I have never really received. I probably will now. So you know, somebody will listen to this podcast and go, "My God, he's got a poster up in his room of a gun to a dog's head." And a cute dog, by the way, a nice little dog. But um, it's only a matter of time before someone takes a moment to look at it. But um, you know, what are you going to do? I, I can't help everybody. So, <laughs> famous last words, <laughs> Mr. Miller. I can't help everybody. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> I can, I can teach it to you. I can't understand it for you. I mean, so it's a little slogan I saw on the teacher's wall one time. Oh, okay. I thought it was another one of yours. I was going to give you even more credit than the dog thing. And (laughs) I I would, I would have butchered that story. I was about to try to tell it, but I I couldn't remember the caption or anything. I just remember the dog looking kind of to the side, (laughs) concerned way, (laughs) trying to hold it together. (laughs) I swear to God, I look at that thing every time I walk in that classroom and I just, I giggle every single day. So, yeah. Well, anyway. All right. Yeah. I think we've um, taken this this one to the ground. ground. (laughs) Uh, Well, so football, let's let's not even watch football. I'm going to come on. Your Packers are playing. They're playing the. They're playing the Forty ers today. Aren't you excited? I know, I, yeah, I know. It's it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen, and I, I know it every every game. I'm not going to predict it publicly because then somebody will listen to this a week from now and think what an idiot. Um, but I, yeah, I'm excited to watch. You don't think there's people out there who think we're idiots already? What are you? Oh, worried? sure. What are you no, worried we, about? We prove that every week. But the <laughs> the fact is, this is probably the greatest football weekend of the year. Um, you know, typically, because these are all relatively even games mm. and you get four of them spread out uh, over two days. So it's, it's, it's quite a feast and looking forward to it. Well, I think we, um, I'm not as excited about today's games as, a, as, as opposed to tomorrow's games, uh, Rams at Buccaneers and then Bills at Chiefs. I think tomorrow is going to be the better day. But I hear, I'll say to you this right now. I say the Bengals have a chance of beating the Titans at home. I think it's going to happen. Well, I picked them, if you remember last night. 
Um, so I, I think I think you're right there. And we may cut off the football part here, Miller. Uh, yeah, maybe so. so. Yeah, we, we we could as we had a. And I think also because the the pitcher froze a little bit as you were yeah. considering my football prediction. So yeah. But, All right. Well, in that case, well, let's, um, let's do a clean break and then end the end the podcast so we can edit it in. Okay. So we'll just. Well, Herr Dr. Bourgeois, thank you for another stimulating conversation, and we will see you next week. We'll bid you an adieu. Adieu. It's been fun and. Um, what, what would you call it? Uh, instructional. Uh, and thank you for that, Herr Miller. We'll go with that. Sure. Yeah.